Yeah, it was a little challenging to be told what to preach at first, and David had to give me a couple of phone calls, and finally I settled in, which was really nice because once you settle into something, you just have to trust, and that's really what the, soul, the whole message is about is trust. I just had to trust that God was going to do what God does, and that is open up meaning and understanding in his word that is not only insightful, but practical practical for marriage. And I thought, you know, I've been married for a few years. I'm, I'm beyond silver. I've got 25 under my belt. I should be able to talk to some degree about this relationship. And then I looked at the story, and the story is really an incredible story. You know, uh, Genesis 24 begins with Abraham realizing that he's getting really old and his son isn't married yet. His son is not in his 20s. His son is not in his 30s. His son is 40 years old. And Abraham's a little bit nervous. And so he remembers, you know, that it's important for his son to have a a wife that is a godly wife. Not one of the wives from the Canaanites, but from back home, he's thinking. So he sends his servant on this long journey. He makes his servant take a solemn oath that he will go and look for a wife and that God will bless and the servant gets nervous, of course, and says, well, what if I find someone who doesn't want to come back? Well, don't worry. You will have, be under no more obligation. So he goes on this journey with his ten camels and his little group of, of, of servants and, and a lot of fine stuff to give to the family and the girl, a dowry, if you will. And he finally comes to Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia to the place that Abraham had left half of his family. And as he gets there, he rests outside the city walls, he prays and asks God to indicate the wife of Isaac would be the girl who waters him and the camels. I don't know how many of you married couples and how many of you young people have prayed that kind of prayer for a wife. Let the woman that I'm going to marry be the one that offers me a drink of water. That will be the answer to my prayer. I remember when I first started dating my wife, she was in Loma Linda, California, and I was up in Malo, Washington, which is just south of the Canadian border. So we were about 1,400 miles apart, and a lot of our relationship took place long distance through telephone because there was no such thing as these things back then, way, way, way back then, 25 years ago. We wrote letters, and we called on landlines. And I remember when I first went to visit her, she picked me up from the airport. We're driving to her house. I'm nervous, and I'm not sure if she's nervous, until she takes her bottle of water, takes a few drinks, and then offers it to me. I was surprised at first, but I thought, hmm, my first kiss. (laughs) And I took a couple of swigs. The answer comes. The angel goes before, just like Abraham had had prayed, and Rebecca, this beautiful woman, offers to water, to give water to Abraham's servant and to the camels. Long story short, the servant makes known his mission, ends up giving lots of fine jewelry and gold and silver to the family, and then asks if he can leave right away with Rebecca. Rebecca is the one that makes the final decision, and she's willing to go. There's a lot of trust here with Abraham, a lot of trust here with 
Isaac and a lot of trust here with the servant and with Rebecca and with the family. I mean, Genesis 24 is just chock full of trust. And then, of course, Rebecca comes, and I remember when my wife first came to Malo, 1,400 miles from Loma Linda, California, out into the middle of nowhere. The first time my father-in-law visited us, we picked him up at the airport in Spokane, which is about three hours from us, and we drove him up the highway through Colville, which is about halfway. And the further out we got, the less people we saw, the less houses we saw, the more trees, the more mountains we saw. And then we finally turned left with him onto this road with a sign that said, Primitive Road. When we picked him up in Spokane, he was talking and excited. When we drove through Colville, he was interested in, in, in looking. When we got over the pass, he got strangely quiet. And by the time we got to the Primitive Road, he didn't say another word, except... Where have you taken my daughter? He was shocked. Rebecca, hundreds of miles to a land and a people she didn't know, to marry a stranger who she'd never met. Where are you taking my daughter? I settled into the story. I I was very, very blessed to understand verse 67 in a way that I'd never understood it before. You know, sometimes when you're desperate to find a good sermon in a chapter where you don't think there's anything, you just read and you research and, and you go, as preachers, sometimes you go on a hunch and an idea. And so I decided to look up this word in uh, Genesis 24, verse 67. And Isaac brought her into his mother's, Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And he loved her. And you know what I discovered? That this is the first time in the entire record of biblical history that we have the description of a man loving a woman. First time. Hundreds of years of biblical history have taken place. Adam, deceived by Eve, I'm sure, has struggled. And many men after him. And now, all of a sudden, we have this man. And, and I think it's really powerful because, you know, we, we talk about and we understand Abraham. And we think about all the great things that he accomplished and all the things that he did. And then we talk about Jacob, you know, and, and how he wrestled with the angel. And, and we, we think about all of his history and all of the things that he offers to us, including Jacob's time of trouble. But Isaac, because all through the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, there's this mention of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, what did Isaac ever do? We know that Abraham did his great things, and we know that Jacob did his great things. All Isaac did was love a woman for the first time ever. Those of you who have been married for as long as I have, or any amount of time, may start to realize before we actually get to the point of this sermon that Isaac's accomplishment was greater than Abraham's and Jacob's. That Isaac, in a time when no man is mentioned or described as loving a woman, loved a woman. Even in chapter 25, when Abraham takes another wife, it just says he took her and had kids. (laughs) Doesn't say anything about love. Not that he didn't love her, but I think that we have a misunderstanding of love 
we enter into a relationship with another person, especially someone that we want to marry, someone that we're dating, someone that we're attracted to, we enter into that relationship with a very immature understanding of love. But Isaac didn't. For some reason, the Bible tells us that Moses was inspired to say that, that Isaac actually loved Rebekah. How could he? Well, we know how we could. I, I really appreciated the, the words of that song. That was a powerful, powerful song that Joshua just sung. And I picked up this line right here. Unless my heart is led by God, I couldn't be loving you. Unless my heart is led by God, I couldn't be loving you. We, we understand that the connection between loving a woman and a man, but in this whole presentation, I think I'm going to put the onus on the men. Loving a woman <laughs> is only possible because of our selfishness in a, and developed as we see the love of God. As we see the love of God, perhaps as we've never seen it before, and the more we see the love of God, the more capable we are of loving another person, specifically of a man loving a woman. And somehow Isaac had seen the love of God, hadn't he? Isaac had seen God as no other human being had seen God because just a few chapters before, we have the first time that the word love is mentioned in the Bible. Now, I mentioned that chapter 24 is the first time that the, the word love in relation to a man loving a woman is mentioned. But in chapter 22, we have the first time the word love is ever mentioned in the Bible, ever. And this love in chapter 22 is the love that Abraham has for Isaac. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. And do what? Sacrifice him. Now we know, most of us, but if we don't, we can read and we can understand that this picture stands as a solitary manifestation in the Old and New Testament of what God experienced in giving his son to die for the world. There's no other place in the Bible that we find a picture of God's heart revealed to us through the experience of Abraham. Because Abraham, first time the word is ever used, loved Isaac. And so God is allowing Abraham and Isaac to experience the very gift, the very giving of Calvary. The very heart of God, how he felt, the anguish he felt in giving the son that he loved for the sins of the world. Isaac and Abraham experienced that. And because of that experience, Isaac was able to love Rebekah. Hadn't even met her. Barely met her, brought her into his mom's tent. But there was a love that God had put in his heart, a love that was there that was, was based upon what he had seen, was based upon the cross and Calvary, the gift. There was a love there that was in his heart. It went beyond what she looked like. It went beyond what she was willing to do. It went beyond any of the earthly material things that he was experiencing with Rebecca, any of those emotions and feelings. It went beyond all of that because this love was centered in the heart of God. I thought I loved my wife. I really did. 
I told her I loved her. I figured that was the reason why we got married. Indeed, it must have been. But our relationship with God and people often begins with what we think is love. But it is likely, mostly, quite a selfish sort of love. We grow in love. And love in its truest, purest form doesn't come at the beginning. It comes at the end. A lot of us, I'm talking about humanity in general, don't make it to the end. And so we don't always experience that truest, purest form of love for another human being, specifically for a husband or a wife, a man or a woman. The first year of our marriage, my wife and I were in marriage counseling. It was very embarrassing for me because, you know, I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor, I'm, a, I'm an evangelist. My wife and I have gone through all the steps. We've covered everything from the Bible and the spirit of prophecy to make this marriage be the best marriage it's supposed to be. And within one year, we're in marriage counseling. Don't tell anybody about that because it's embarrassing. I don't want anyone to know. We're reading books. Because both of us come from dysfunctional families. My family had my mom, single-parent family. Hers was a single-parent family. And even though she was raised an Adventist, and I was raised a Christian, Catholic. And even though we're both very converted, we have all this baggage, all this dysfunction that's coming into the relationship. I'm knocking myself out, I think, to love my wife. But then I start reading some material. The first book that I read was called Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. 50 million copy bestseller, New York Times bestseller list for 121 weeks. And one of the basic premises of this book is that when women talk, they just want to communicate. They don't want answers. They don't want help. They don't want solves. Their problem's solved. They just want to tell you. They just want you to listen to them. Just listen to me. I read that book and I chuckled and I thought, no way. This just can't be. Because, see, I'm a man and I don't think that way. When men talk, they want solutions. If I'm going to ask you for some help, if I'm going to talk to you about my problems, I want you to give me some advice. Help me out here, buddy. Don't just sit there with your mouth open going, oh. But women are different. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm not going to try it on my mom. I mean, my wife's going to try it on my mother because I noticed that my mom and I would, would, would talk. She lives in England, and she would call me on a pretty consistent basis, or I would call her on a consistent basis, and we would talk about things, and she would always tell me about, you know, the issues and problems that were taking place there in the home, a lot of different stuff. And, and as she would talk to me, I would say to her, well, you should do this, or you should do that, or have you tried this, or no, that's not the way to handle that. If I were you, I would do it this way. And as we would talk and the conversation would continue on, we would get more and more intense and more and more heated, and pretty soon my mom would just want to hang up, and so would I. <laughs> I didn't understand. It was very frustrating. I never looked forward to my mom calling me with all of her problems until I read this book, and I said, I'm going to try this, and so my mother called me. And she started telling me all these problems, and I listened. I didn't say anything, but I listened. And every once in a while, I would say, really? Oh, that's too bad. Oh, I can't believe it. Oh, I hate it when that happens. 
Yeah. And I really felt, you know, like, I'm not, this isn't right. You know, this isn't good. But I just followed the outline of the book. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. And when I was finished, when our conversation was done, and I had said about 10 to 15 words, and my mom had talked for, you know, a short novel. (laughs) She said to me, oh, I'm so glad I called you. I feel so much better. I said, it works. (laughs) Click. But even though it works... We're not wired that way. Men are not wired that way. I learned that, that idea 25 years ago or so. And my wife still reminds me from time to time, James, I just need you to listen to me. Don't tell me anything. Sometimes when it's really significant, she'll say, now I'm going to tell you some things right now. Remember, just listen. <laughs> just listen. Then there was another book I read. This book was called The Languages of Love by Gary Chapman. That really helped. That helped me a lot. It was talking about describing these five love languages, the way that we communicate love, gifts, and words of approbation, and acts of service, and physical touch. These were some of the love languages. And I was really interested. I really wanted to understand this. I really wanted to, again, grow in my ability to love my wife because it just wasn't working. I mean, when we got married, I assured her Honey, don't worry, even though I'm working five days a week, out there traveling, preaching, doing what I need to do to bring home the stripples, I'm also going to be helping you in the home. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vacuum. I'm going to clean the bathroom. I'm going to do some stuff in the home because I want you to know that I love you. And that's what I was doing. I was, I was out there working eight to five, or whatever it is that the pastor works, and then I was coming home every, every week. I was, when I was there, I was, I was cleaning the, helping to clean the house. And my wife was completely insecure. We're having these counseling sessions, and I'm telling the pastor, I'm knocking myself out here. I'm doing everything I can do. I'm literally frustrated because my wife is insecure, and here I am, not only working, but also out, out of the house, but also working in the house. What else could I do? And we learned about these languages of love. And I came to find out that my love language is acts of service. That the reason why I thought I was loving my wife was because I was loving her the way that I wanted to be loved. So in reality, I was loving myself. That her love language wasn't acts of service. Her love language, number one, was quality time. Well, I didn't have time for quality time because I'm working and I'm working. <laughs> I don't have time to just sit down and listen and just, you know, sit on the couch. And, you know, we got things we got to get done. So God was moving me through not only an understanding of love, but helping me to understand how to communicate that love to my wife. Spend time with me. Listen to me. Stop working and just sit. Again, I thought that's got to be, that's got to be, that's just too easy. It just can't be that simple. But it is. That's what works. Every once in a while, I'll overwhelm my wife with all the love languages at one time. 
And God does that for us. When you look in the Bible, you see that God speaks to us in the language of love. The book of Hebrews brings us out, and, and by the way, those of you who are, are going to be in the area, uh, Oregon, in June, last week of June, just happened to be in the area, come to our convocation. It's on the theme, Something Better, and it's about the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is a relational book, and in the book of Hebrews, you find all the languages of love. God communicates love to us. He gives us gifts to indicate his love. He gave the gift of himself in the person of his son. Physical touch. He came to be one with us for eternity in the person of Jesus Christ. Rest. Quality time. The Sabbath. God wants to spend quality time with us and connect with us. Acts of service. Interceding with us. For us. Mediating for us through Jesus Christ. Words of approbation. Hebrews chapter 11. You ever read that chapter and, un- and tried to, to find one area in Hebrews 11 where God finds fault with any of his people? It's always positive. The whole history of God's people in Hebrews 11 is one positive revelation after another. Nothing negative in that chapter. That chapter is an outline of our lives in the context of the investigative judgment. Only the good, all the bad covered by Jesus. Praise God. As we continued to grow in our experience, there was another book that I read that almost destroyed me. What I mean by that is, there's some of me that's still alive that needs to be destroyed completely. (laughs) But it almost took all of self out. This book is written by a man by the name of Ken Nair, and it's called Discovering the Mind of a Woman. It was so revolutionary that I decided I've got to do a Sabbath school class in my church on this book for all of the men. So I got up one Sabbath morning with the permission of the pastor, and I said to the congregation, I have a Sabbath school class that we're going to be starting just for men. It's based on a book that I've read that's really helped me in my relationship with my wife. This book is entitled, Discovering the Mind of a Woman. And one very old gentleman in the back of the church raised his hand, and he said, I have a question. I said, yes. He said, how many years are we going to be in that Sabbath school class? (laughs) And I said, you need to be there, brother. Because the fact of the matter is, is that God made us in his image. Male and female created he them. Therefore, a woman is part of the revelation of God. And if we can't understand a woman, we're the ones that need to grow. The basic premise of this book was simple. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, took full responsibility for the human race. And we, as men, are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church. It was simple, but when I thought about it, it was overwhelming. Because basically, in marriage... You have covenant, you have Christ, but you also have conflict. Have you noticed that? Those of you who are married. And children, because you see it in your parents. You have conflict. You have a perfect revelation of the great controversy in miniature. 
And in the great controversy, it's confusing because we know, you and I both know, that it's difficult to figure out, you know, what's right and what's wrong, what's dark and what's light. There's a lot of people in this world that are completely deceived, and it's the same with us. You know, when I'm talking to my wife and my wife's talking to me, we don't ever argue, but we have these intense moments of fellowship. <laughs> both of us are right, and neither of us are wrong. Who's going to step up to the plate and take responsibility? Well, in our situation, in the relationship that we have with God, in the marriage union that is spiritual, Christ being the husband and we being the bride, Christ took responsibility for all of it. And what's really amazing is that there's no question in that relationship that he's not responsible for any of it. So to love the wife as Christ loved the church is for the man to step forward and say, you know what? Regardless of who started all this, regardless of who brought the most bags into this relationship, I'm going to take responsibility for it. I'm the one that's going to bear the responsibility to make this relationship everything that God wants it to be. I'm going to take my eyes, my focus, off you and your faults, and I'm going to place them on Jesus. And I'm going to allow his great love and his great sacrifice to so mold and transform me that you could be the most wicked, evil person on planet Earth, and I'm going to love you from the bottom of my heart. That was overwhelming, but it has taken me through so many trials and difficulties that it is my very hope. Yeah, I thought I loved my wife when we got married, but I had no clue because in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Bible says that love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself rudely. How many times have I done that? Does not seek its own, is not provoked. There's no one that can push my buttons quite like my wife can. Thinks no evil. Why is she doing that? What is she thinking? <laughs> Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there's tongues, they will cease. Where there's knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part is done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. It's time to be men, men. It's time to play the man, men. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Women will see in us the transition from boyhood to manhood. They'll notice it. It will not be hard for a woman who has given their lives and their hearts to Jesus to surrender to a husband who loves them the way that Jesus loves the church. The responsibility, therefore, is not for the woman to submit to us. The responsibility is for us to love the woman as Christ loved the church. 
And now abides faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And so Paul says in verse 14, pursue love. So it is perhaps in closing a salient statement, a practical truth that Genesis 24 ends with verse 67. Because our relationship with God and people often begins with what we think is love. But it is most likely quite a selfish love. We grow in love. And that love in its truest, purest form doesn't come at the beginning. It comes at the end.